This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hi, it's Glenn Beck, and I want to thank you for supporting The Blaze. Because of your phone calls and emails, The Blaze has been added by many TV providers. But we can't stop now. The big media companies like DirecTV, Comcast, and Time Warner aren't listening. They think CNN, MSNBC, and Al Jazeera America are all you need. But we humbly disagree, and we think you do too. Visit GetTheBlaze.com and let your TV provider know that you want The Blaze in your home. GetTheBlaze.com. Thanks. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. It's been a little while getting back in the saddle. You can join us online, hashtag Kane and Cup, or follow me at Will Kane. Follow her at S.E. Cup. This thing... It's been like two weeks, Essie. I don't even know what I'm doing in here. I know. Does it feel weird for you? Yeah. I think this is a microphone, right? You hey, where were you? People wanted to know where you were last week, and so I had some fun telling them that you were maybe maybe at rehab. <laughs> I said maybe you were getting some work done. Rehab. Oh, was that funnier? <laughs> I was getting some work done. Yeah. We thought we were speculating maybe nose job. Oh, that kind of work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe just that you hated me and didn't show up that day. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Back up. Oh, that's worth its own topic and <laughs> block today. Uh, no, but all of a sudden now insecurities are running rampant. What, why did you pick nose job? What are you saying about my nose? <laughs> I love that you're not offended by the suggestion that I put you in rehab. Well, and then, then, and then rehabbing from what, right? This is, these get, are good I didn't get into specifics because, because I like you. And I would never do that to a friend. What would be my addiction? That's another block we need to. What would your addiction be and my addiction? If we were in rehab, yeah. ranking them from least likely to most likely, what would yeah. be that addiction? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well, I'll tell you this. I was in the mountains, quotation marks, the mountains of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, camping. <laughs> in fact, oh. let's talk about that in the third hour today because I have opinions about camping. Is camping a euphemism for rehab? Yeah. <laughs> no, I was I was sincerely camping. Um, All right, whatever. And we should talk about that. Um, a little bit later in this hour, I also want to talk about bro country. Oh, good. George Strait versus modern day country, where we are in country music today. Mm-hmm. When the depth of our lyrics is, this is how we roll. I, I have a lot to say about this and that song in particular. Yeah. I mean, that's the definition of bro country. 100%. And I'm a country fan. I know you are too. And we we have different ideas of what that means. So this is going to be good. And I know a lot of listeners, a lot of our listeners are country fans. So this is going to be a good, a good conversation. I want to break it all down. But first, this morning, uh, our Saturday morning show is fortuitous because there was all kinds of news that broke late yesterday. The nature of scandals over the last three years seemed to reach its apex yesterday, at least when it comes to some form of accountability. As we saw the resignation from both Press Secretary Jay Carney and head of the Veterans Administration, uh, Shinseki, yesterday from the Obama administration. Yeah, I mean, people had been asking for a long time for multiple reasons, why Rick Shinseki was still overseeing the VA. And it got to the point where when even Democrats were telling Obama that Shinseki had to go, I think the tides were too 
strong for Obama to stand against. I mean, you you know, over the past five years, the M.O. of this White House has been the same through all of these scandals. They don't they don't accept resignations. They don't fire people. They slow walk these scandals and the information that comes out so that the American public tires of it, so that we forget about it, so that we get annoyed after hearing, after hearing, after hearing, and we start thinking, okay, enough is enough. Let's move on to the next thing. That's what they do. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm not someone who has uh, been on the air over the last several weeks calling for the resignation of General Shinseki. Um, I just... Firings so often in government are superficial remedial measures, right? They don't really fix the problem. They're cathartic for us, and they are scapegoats for the uh, firing party, for the administration in this case. So it doesn't really do much to solve any particular problem. But here's something I see. I do think they're indicative of something deeper, and that is the culture of leadership and accountability you create. Whether or not you're talking about government or private business or whatever – you know, during the Bush administration, which had, it, which had its own share of scandals, you saw people like Donald Rumsfeld offer his resignation. Mm-hmm. Now, what that's indicative of is a culture that you create of leadership mm-hmm. and accountability, where the culture we see here is you do not need to step down. We will mm-hmm. have your back, and accountability will ultimately be elusive. Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think I think the resignation or the firing, though, though is important. Um for for a for for a number of reasons. One, I, I never understood why why the White House wouldn't want to just clear the decks on some of these stories. Get Shinseki gone, and then you don't have that aspect of this scandal looming over your head. And it looks like you're actually doing something. Absolutely, I mean, from their perspective, even just for political practical reasons, I never understood why they kept people like. Sibelius, uh, you know, and, and Shinseki around as long as they did, just politics aside, but also for that for that accountability to set the tone and the precedent that when you are appointed as Shinseki and Sibelius and others were to oversee something incredibly important and under your watch, problems, serious, significant problems arise, you will be held accountable to set that tone. I think is important. And President Obama has not set that tone of leadership and accountability that you're talking about by keeping these people around and circling the wagons. Yeah, but I think that's what they do to protect their own. But I think your um, comparison to Sebelius actually illustrates my point. The reason that Sebelius was not asked to resign earlier, the reason she was not pressured to step down is because not only would it not have been helpful towards ultimately getting the Obamacare website fixed, it probably would have been detrimental. Why? Because you would have spent weeks, perhaps months, looking for a replacement, having someone come in and get up to speed and get approved by Congress, and they needed that website to move forward quickly. The point is, it's an illustration of not fixing the problem, rather just scapegoating the problem. With Shinseki, as well, it doesn't fix the problem at the no, VA to not, get rid of him. And, of and in fact, the reason they were able to get rid of him is because in the end, it didn't set back the process the same way Sibelius' firing would have set back the process. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know how instrumental Sibelius was. And they brought in Jeffrey Zients to fix the computer stuff. And they brought in other people. They, I think they kept her around 
uh, more for political reasons and for cover and because this is just what they do. But you're absolutely right. Getting rid of Sebelius, getting rid of Shinseki, these are not going to change the fundamental problems that were underpinning these scandals. And and that's that's kind of what I want to get into today because I have I have a theory about while well, you were gone last week, well I I sort of laid out all of the um the spin arguments about the VA scandal for for our listeners. I I I told everyone these are the things you're going to hear from liberals about why the VA is a scandal. You're going to hear all kinds of things. And here's here's a good argument against all of those things. Now, I want to lay out the spin on this multitude of scandals because Democrats realize now this might be this might be one scandal too many. And this is this is a serious one. I mean, if you look back on all of the scandals and there are so many, it is it is shocking how many scandals this administration has overseen from Fast and Furious at the ATF. Remember Pigford at the yeah. Department of Agriculture? Solyndra at the Department of Energy? The IRS, of course. The State Department's Benghazi mess, of course. Healthcare.gov. The NSA. Spying, spying at the NSA and the DOJ. Right. I mean, it is. there are very few departments left for Obama to defend. But... In all of these scandals, the White House has really behaved the same way. And the spin that they've put around these scandals has been, it's no one at the top. It's not a high-level issue. It's a low-level issue. And they do that, like I said, I think to protect themselves. It's a lot of CYA over there. To circle the wagons. To protect Obama's legacy, to make sure it it doesn't look like they made mistakes in appointing various people. Mm-hmm. But what they don't realize is, in all of their explanations for these scandals, they are revealing something incredible. Ooh. What they are saying, Democrats and liberals, about these scandals, when they tell you it's low-level bureaucrats... And they don't realize they're doing this, but they are completely making a conservative argument against big government. Let me give you some examples. The problem at the IRS, of course, wasn't Lois Lerner or anyone else in charge or a top-down directive to monitor political activity. No, that was was rogue agents. It was low-level bureaucrats in a Cincinnati office. Right, They were specific. They were specific, Will. It was in Cincinnati. (laughs) And it was a couple of low-level bureaucrats. Problem solved. At HHS, it wasn't Sebelius. It wasn't anyone at the top. It was the Canadian contractor, CGI. Right. Again, they like these far-off places like Cincinnati and Canada where no one ever goes and no one's ever heard of. (laughs) Now, at the NSA, never mind who gave the directive. To secretly collect metadata from millions of Americans. That wasn't the problem. The problem was a hacker, a rogue private contractor. Right. I get where you're going. All In of Hawaii. The, uh, all of the accountability on any of these scandals lies at some low-level bureaucracy. The management somehow failed us. Let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, you tie all these together and reveal what it actually says about government. In the meantime, 
I'm going to consider what addiction porn, uh, alcohol. Oh boy. Um, is most likely. Which one? For you. For yeah. You. Which one will be the first one I'll go to rehab for? Let's let's okay. do that. You give us a Excellent. call at 800 or 888-900-3393. See, I already messed up the number. Uh, on Kane and Welcome Cobb. back. When we come back. You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio kane and cup is on 900-3393 that's 888-900-3393 give us a call join me and se cup over the next two and a half hours let's hang out uh when we left at the end of the break which is before the break se you were telling us that no matter what the scandal from the nsa to the irs to the va we've been sold essentially the same culprit from the obama Mm -hmm. administration yeah. The names may change, the position may change, the geography may change, but the culprit mm-hmm. remains the same. It's low-level, sometimes rogue bureaucrats. Yeah, it's a startling admission. I mean, let, let's be clear. When they're not telling us that these phony scandals are about Republican obstructionism or Republicans not funding something or Republicans voting the wrong way or Republicans getting up in the morning or Republicans being racist— They're telling us that the problems at all of these agencies and departments are low-level bureaucrats. And I heard the same exact thing from Democrats for the past three weeks on the VA. Shinseki's done a heck of a job. It's the folks underneath him who totally, on their own, decided to keep secret waiting lists. And he needs to stick around to make sure that they start doing their jobs. Well, what the hell's he been doing for six years? And I think these Democrats who are blaming low-level bureaucrats are absolutely right. What they don't realize is they are walking right into my nightmare. (laughs) They are walking right into my argument. Yes, it's the oversight of millions of low-level bureaucrats, hundreds and thousands of them, with unnavigable chains of command and totally arcane protocols. That's the problem. Yes, The outsourcing of sensitive government work to low-level contractors is the problem. Yes, the sprawling and ever-expanding surveillance state that allows our most personal information to go to the hands of unaccountable bureaucrats is the problem. And you know what? You know what? Money is the problem, too, but not in the way the Democrats will tell you. Democrats will tell you Republicans got in the way of funding, say, for the Benghazi consulate, even though the State Department itself agreed money was not the issue. And they they told us over the past few weeks that funding at the VA was the problem. Of course, the VA itself reported more than $2 billion spent in waste and fraud just in 2012. They can't manage the money that they already have. Because they are bloated bureaucracies with no accountability. This idea 
of low-level bureaucrats being to blame is not one that makes me warm and fuzzy. As you said, it is my nightmare. and It makes me remember during the debate over the NSA spying scandal what it was about that scandal that scared me so thoroughly. Many people would say, look, look, what do you think? You think the government's interested in your porn habits, Mm-mm. which do not exist? <laughs> do you think the government is interested in figuring out if you're having an affair, which I am not? Mm-hmm. Do you think the government is interested in you? No, I don't. I don't think Eric Holder or Barack Obama is interested in me. But I saw the movie The Lives of Others about the Mm. German surveillance state, which is an excellent movie. And your fear on government spying has to lie in its ability because it's the low-level bureaucrats like like Edward Snowden Mm -hmm. who can get access to so much. It's the low-level bureaucrats who have a petty grievance, who have uh, uh, a stalking – obsession with someone who can use this data to very, very dangerous means. Low-level bureaucrats is actually the greatest fear. Well, absolutely right. And when there are hundreds of of thousands of them, it's impossible. It's impossible to know what everyone in that bureaucracy is doing because big government bureaucracy is the problem. Right. And what is amazing is that Democrats tell us that all the time. Right. Right. Let me just leave you with an amazing quote from Senator Bernie Sanders, who is a self-described Democratic Socialist. Here's what he said about the VA. If this doesn't tell you all you need to know, I don't know what does. He says, the point is we're a big country. The VA sees six and a half million people a year. Are people going to be treated badly? Are some people going to die because of poor treatment in the VA? Yes, that's a tragedy, and we have to get to the root of it. That is a startling admission that big government bureaucracy is the problem. You know, there's a corollary, a law on the Internet called Godwin's Law. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with it? Yes. It's whenever an Internet comment thread uh, devolves into – well, actually, it's when an in- the concept of Hitler is first introduced into an Internet comment thread. That is over. You have reached the point of insanity in the comment <laughs> thread, and you should leave. Um, and it is also suggests that every – Internet comment thread, no matter what the topic, will eventually reach Godwin's Law, which Hitler will eventually be invoked even if you're debating the (laughs) Dallas Cowboys versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. Right. Um, I think conservatives often find the point in any subject where they mention Marxism or statism or Stalin or Lenin. Allow me to do that now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we're constantly sold the promise of efficient bureaucracy. We're constantly sold that the problem is not the idea. The problem is the manager. If we can Mm -hmm. just get the right manager, the idea will be utopic. The problem with communism wasn't the idea. The problem with communism was Stalin, Right. right? That he was simply a bad actor, a bad manager, the wrong person in charge. And if we can get the right guy... Communism will be proven to be just the utopia it was promised. Yeah. And that's the point. If you boil that down onto a small, yes, watered-down stage, the problem with government bureaucracy isn't your lack of a genius manager. It mm-hmm. isn't your um, born bureaucrat who we need to find and put in charge. The problem is the idea because you will never find that guy. He does not exist. No one can manage hundreds of thousands of employees and 300 million people's lives and choices. The problem, my friends, is your idea. That's right. And so so Democrats will go out of their way to avoid admitting that. I'm arguing they don't know that they, they actually are admitting that. 
But in protecting the right. guy at the top, it doesn't matter because when the guy at the top is sitting on top of a steaming pile of crap, <laughs> there's nothing that guy at the top can do about it. Right. Uh, when we come back, let's debate the concept, the fad, the trend, the place we have arrived at in country music that mm-hmm. some are calling bro country. And I offer you the one-time salvation to these fads was a man named George Strait. Who is mm. today's George Strait? 888-900-3393 on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. King of Cup returns now. No. I like country music. I know you like country music as well, I see. Yeah. I think I know why I like country music. Um, And it's not just because it was the music of my childhood growing up in Texas. It's not just because it's infused with nostalgia for me. It's that uh, it tells a story. You know, I was reading this profile of George Strait on the cover of Texas Monthly this month. It's an excellent profile. Um, And it says, pop music can be made. A hit pop song can be made, built on the back of a beat. Country has to tell a song. The lyrics have to take you somewhere. And I'm a story guy. That's why I like movies. That's why I like country music. But we've arrived at an interesting place in country music. And Colin Ray wrote an op-ed on foxnews.com. You sent it to me, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. And you told me you actually don't know who Colin Ray is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him. I bet you are. Uh, One boy, one girl. Mm. Or love me, love, comma, me. Uh, It's a song written in the form of a letter. Hmm. Um, Little Rock. He has has some hits that I guarantee that you're familiar with. Yeah, okay. But uh, Colin Ray wrote this on Fox... uh, News.com, he said, uh, where is it? I had it right here. Um, Will's a little rusty. What is the radio thing? I'm not even sure how to do this. It's not camping. This is Colin Ray on FoxNews.com. He says, there appears to be not even one slightest attempt to say anything in country today, other than to repeat the tired, overused mantra of redneck party boy in his truck, partying in said truck hoping to get lucky in the cab of said truck. And his greatest possible achievement in life is to continue to be physically and emotionally attached to the aforementioned truck, Uh as all things in life should and must take place in his, you guessed it, truck. The argument is that every single country song today is the same. And it's called, I guess, Bro Country. Well, can I sub you right there? Please. Because what what the criticism of bro country and it's a it's a valid one is isn't criticizing all of today's modern country. It is a fragment of today's country that is focused on these essential components of of a bro country song: truck, tailgate, crown, cut off jeans, beer, um, and 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 that's not every song. I, I mean, I I will defend. Modern country, and I know there are a lot of country snobs out there who think that nothing today even remotely resembles 
true country. But I like I like Jason Aldean. I like Billy Currington. Uh, you know, God is great. Beer is good. People are crazy. I think that's a fun song. And I'm not I'm not too, you know, uh, too much of a purist to admit that I like a lot of today's pop modern country. But this bro country subset is so inane that I think it gives the rest of modern country a bad name. And I think a lot of the folks that might have stayed away from bro bro country are now being sucked into it and feel compelled to produce bro country songs because they have immediate crossover appeal, right? I mean, think of Florida Georgia Line and and the song Cruise, which was a hugely popular song. They recorded another version with Nelly that became even more popular. I mean, who doesn't want to burst onto the scene like Florida Georgia Line did with that kind of attention and success? It's not, though, I think you've missed, you've created a straw man. It's not about whether or not there is any good country today. It's whether or not good country actually gets airplay, whether or not good country mm. can arrive on the scene if anyone can get it to, if it can get anyone's attention. And here's the other thing. Some of this modern country, I agree, isn't bad, but there's a difference between liking something and recognizing that it's good. I like uh, God is great, beer is good. Mm-hmm. It is not a timeless song. It's oh, on I my, disagree. It's on my iPod. Will I, I be, disagree. Will I be listening to that 20 years from now? Probably yes. not. That's a classic. Those lyrics are great. And that's that's a great song. I mean, Zach Brown Band, Eli Young Band, those are good bands that get plenty of radio play. They're, they're excellent musicians. They're talented people. They write good songs. Look, I mean... They're good. They're not great. They're good. Mm-hmm. They're not great. There is great country music today. It does not get attention. I'm not ashamed to say I am a country music snob. Yeah. Leanne Womack, Jamie Johnson, these are great country singers they do not get played they do not get played on the radio and they have to find themselves to some extent in subgenres like americana or red dirt and you have to get specialty radio stations that actually will play that stuff because the 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 uh, major radio is dominated dominated by florida georgia line and every other group that sounds just like them and by the way i kind of like this is how we roll i mean i have to be in it honest when they play it my son sings along, and I'll sing along, but I'm not. Yeah, it's it's at about a four year old level. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> song. It's a terrible song. But no, but let me let me ask you about something you just said. Yeah. Do you fault Leanne Womack for becoming a crossover success with songs like "I Hope You Dance"? I mean, this is no. She 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 left. I won't say she left country, but she became popularly successful. Is that is that a bad thing? Does that make her less credible? No, absolutely not. And and, and success, I would never malign success. It's the point is how difficult it is to reach success because there's a formula, and the formula has yes. become dumbed down. Truck. And the formula has become cheap, and it has become watch this, Essie, ephemeral. Oh, look ah, at you! Even the board ops laughed. Everybody laughed. I did it. <laughs> Finally, you learned how to say that word, Will. Let me give you the anecdote. To ephemeral, because this is not the first time, by the way. Um, Bro country is not the first fad in country music. And so I was reading this George Strait profile. It's excellent in Texas Monthly. You should check it out. That in the early 1980s, there was a fad called Urban Cowboy. And to some extent, it was a response to the movie Urban Cowboy, or Urban Cowboy was an illustration of it. And it's when country music was dominated. Country music airplay was dominated by people like Kenny Rogers, 
and Eddie Rabbit. Again, mm. the point is not that Kenny Rogers is bad. I listen to The Gambler over and over. Yep. But songs like Lady, right, mm. with no steel guitar, no fiddle, which Lady. begin to push. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's all you get. <laughs> which begin to push the concept and definition of the genre. Mm. The, that was a fad. And in walked a guy in Islands starts- in the Stream. <laughs> See, these are Lionel Richie covers, basically, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> in walked a guy with starched jeans that were stacked, meaning they were too long. He wore 34 length with 32 legs because you wear them that way because when you sit on your horse, they don't ride up. And he sang country music songs. And by the way, he wore a cowboy hat, and his name was George Strait. And for 30 years, that guy has stood there on the stage without pyrotechnics, singing songs, yes, somewhat similar in nature, but with standing fads from hat country, which he actually started, where everyone then had to wear a hat, to mm-hmm. ball cap country, to... Uh, oh, yeah, Tim McGraw. Yeah, to mm-hmm. the current incarnation of bro country. And he got gets up there, just like his movie, Pure Country, and sings simply and has churned out number one hit after number one hit for 30 years. Let me tell you something. You too hasn't done that. Yeah. Um. No one has done this. This is the king of country music, and I'm sad to say this is his last year touring regularly. Tonight he's playing Foxborough, Massachusetts, Jesse, and my wife and I tried to put it together to go see him. Well, because next know, week, by the way, he's going to AT and T in Arlington. It's the final oh. one, June seventh. Oh, that's ha- right by where I live. Uh, oh, are you no, saying Arlington, Texas? Arlington, Texas. Oh, okay. Hundred thousand people. 100,000 people. But, but you know concert. what? Jay Z said the same thing and he came back. So it can happen. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, he might, he might, he might yet tour again. You know, no, look, your defense of George Strait is great, but I, I, and, 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 and impeccable and impossible to argue with. He's fantastic. And I think a separate point is how terrible Bro Country is. It's a separate point. I don't think, I, I don't think. George Strait is the only good thing to ever happen to country music, and I don't think bro country represents the death of country music. I think people are still making good country music. No, in fact, I think George Strait represents hope, right? Amidst the fads, amidst Mm -hmm. the trends, there is someone. It is possible to do classic, classically country music and not just survive, but thrive year after year. Number one hit after number one hit. What do we, you and I were talking about, the 60 number one hits? Yeah, yeah, Cra- like crazy, like a number one hit every year for 30 years. Right. Just think about that. Right. That's crazy. Again, no one, no matter the genre, can do it. By the way, you didn't grow up in Texas. I'm surprised no. at this. He's somewhat regional. He's the. Hey, I, I asked somebody from Connecticut, do you know who George Strait is? Do you guys, I'm looking through the glass, do, do you know who George Strait is? I got, I got nods, but I'm surprised there are people mm. who don't know who George Strait is. Huh. I mean, he's well, not. that's br- crazy. He hasn't done, I guess, what what Bruce Springsteen did, which is transcend a genre, transcend a region, hmm. and become a national. I figure. think he has. I think he has. I mean, I, sure, you can find people who haven't, but he's pretty big. And you're right. I wasn't. I didn't grow up in Texas. I will have you know, I was conceived there. I just, I just earned a whole new level of respect for you. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, my parents were living in uh, McKinney. That's thirty at the minutes time. from where I was born and raised. Wow, that's crazy. Right up Highway 75. Yeah. Uh, and then they moved to California where I was born. Hmm. Yeah. But uh, let me ask you this real quick. What do you think about Jason Aldean? He's my he's my favorite current country song. Jason country Aldean. Song. I, he, I, I, 
I Come don't on. dislike Jason Aldean. There is a Jason Aldean song on my on my phone. What I mean, is it? Night Train, Flyover States, Big Green Tractor. What is it? No, it's more embarrassing than that because it's actually it? beyond the genre of bro country. Texas was her. What I think you call this hip hop? Oh God, does he rap? rap in it? Does he rap in it? Yeah, he raps in it, or somebody oh, does. Oh no, Cole Ford, I think does. Dirt Road. Oh no, you know the song Dirt Road. Dirt Road Anthem, of course. Yeah, Dirt Road Anthem. I, I like it. Mm-hmm. I'm chilling on a dirt road. Yeah, I know that song. <laughs> Laid back. <laughs> Swerving like I'm George Jones. <laughs> but I am. I, I do know this. I like that song. I will not be listening to that song in 30 years, much less now was when I downloaded it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a good song. All right, it's let's do song. this. Let's play a game. Let's play a game when we come back from break. Let's do this. Let's play what game. What kind of game? Game of Bros, of course. <laughs> and let's see if we can distinguish classical, real, well-written country lyrics from bro country. Let's see if yeah. we can do that when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, welcome back. We did so much pontificating on country music. We didn't leave ourselves much time for a game of bros, which I want to launch now. I've got a panel of bros, SE. I've got Mm -hmm. Jose, I've got Brian, and I've got John in front of me. We want to put them to a test. We're going to read classical country music lyrics, George Strait. And we're going to read bro country. They have to distinguish between the two. Now, I want to tell you this, SC. Um, I think we've got a good audience here because John is like a gearhead from New Jersey. Brian's a Northeasterner, and Jose is black. So we can't necessarily have <laughs> poor country music demo here in front of us. That being said, they all nodded their heads when I said, have you heard of George Strait? So yep. we'll see how this goes. Okay. Um, you guys ready? John, you said you, you couldn't name one George Strait song. I could not name a single George Strait song. I bet you could. Jose, are you like secretly this big country fan? Uh, I'm not familiar with this catalog, no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan? I'm not familiar. All right, good. All right, um, I will read one lyric. We might only be able to do one of these. Um, Yeah. And then Essie will read one. If we can get to more than one, great. I got to pull it up here. Here we go. This is an option. I'll read an option. Then Essie will read an option. You will take your votes. Which one is classic country? Which one is bro country? Option one. They took my saddle in Houston, broke my leg in Santa Fe, lost my wife and a girlfriend somewhere along the way. But I'll be looking for eight when they pull that gate, and I hope the judge ain't blind. I will mm-hmm. not read the chorus now. Okay. That's option one. Okay. Bros, option you got two. it? Bros, you got it? Okay. They've all got option it. two. Yeah, the boys around here drinking that ice cold beer, talking about girls, talking about trucks. Running them red dirt roads out, kicking up dust. The boys around here, sending up a prayer to the man upstairs. Backwoods legit, don't take no lip. Chew tobacco, chew tobacco, chew tobacco, spit. (laughs) (laughs) Is lip the right word? I think he meant something else. Lip is not the right word. Okay. This is uh, too easy, I think. (laughs) John? I got others. The the rodeo song has got to be George Strait. Hmm. 
Brian? I agree with John. <laughs> Jose? I think it's unanimous. <laughs> it's the- talking about girls, talking about trucks. <laughs> I know both of these. Uh, SE's song is Blake Shelton. Um, who I like. Who I like. Who the- I like. But that song, oh my God. Chorus of which is Chewtabacca, Chewtabacca, Chewtabacca spit. <laughs> Mine is perhaps, I'm going to submit the greatest country song of all time, Amarillo mm. by Morning by George Strait. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Jose, do we have time to do one more? You have, you have a minute 40. We got a minute 40. Okay, We're going to do, do one more. SE, go. Option number okay. one. I got that real good feel good stuff up under the seat of my big black jacked up truck, rolling on 35s, pretty girl by my side. You got that suntan skirt and boots waiting on you to look my way and scoot your little hot self over here. Girl, hand me another beer. <laughs> Just, we even need to read the second option. <laughs> no, they're all shaking their heads. No. And yet I will for you, since you don't know the catalog, John. Here we go. <laughs> Baby, all I've got is this beat-up leather bag. And everything I own don't fill up half. But don't you worry about the way I pack, because all I care about is getting back real soon. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that has substance to it. The other one's garbage. <laughs> Girl, hand me another beer. <laughs> What does he say? Also, get up over here. He does a double uh, preposition. What is it? <laughs> yeah, get your little hot self over here. Girl, hand me another beer. Uh, Brian that's uh, and Luke Jose. Bryan. That's my kind of night. Do we need to vote? Do you know which is the bro country song? Uh, option one. Option one is bro country, says Jose. Yep. I second that. All right. Yep. This was too easy. Bro country. Li- Either this is too easy and bro country lyrics, you have some serious... Uh, staring into the mirror to do. <laughs> or we didn't present this correctly. <laughs> Playing Game of Bros again today. It's going to be fun. I think Jose is going to be joining us a little more in the future. Game of Bros next week as well. When we come back nice. on Kane and Cup, let's uh, let's do this. Let's have a debate. Let's bring in Charles Cook from National You're Review. listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. Chew tobacco, chew tobacco, chew tobacco, spit. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm S.E. Cup. And I'm Will Kane. <laughs> That's a terrible song. But you won't change the channel. No, I like Blake. You sit there and listen to it and be ashamed of yourself. I will listen to that song. It's really bad, though. Um, I mean, that's why people make fun of country music sometimes. That's why. Rightfully so. I know it's it's sad because I'm a fan. Anyway, I could go on and on and on about this. But uh, let's get back to business. Earlier this week, you know, I, I do um, I do Cane and Cup segments on Real News. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling you, Will, this because you know that. I'm telling our, our, our listeners. Um, and I was getting ready for that segment this week. I was in D.C., of course. You were in New York. And so I was watching the show before... Before my segment came up and you all were having a discussion about um, the the speech that President Obama gave at West Point on on his foreign policy. Right. And to a person around the table, you were deriding it, I think rightly so. And you were you were talking about where Obama's foreign policy had gone wrong, 
whether his rhetoric matched, um, you know, the policy, et cetera, et cetera. It was a really great conversation. Um, you know, as as most real news conversations are, it was nuanced. It was good. It was deep. Um, and then a uh, friend of the show, frequent guest, great all around guy, Charles Cook, said something that really caught my eye. And he started it by saying, now, let me just let me just be a contrarian for a moment and defend President Obama. That's not the part that I took issue with. That's fine. What he said was <laughs> President Obama is responding to public sentiment with his foreign policy and the rhetoric on his foreign policy. There is not an appetite to go into Syria. There is not an appetite to go into Ukraine. There is not an appetite to go into the Maghreb. There is not an appetite for U.S. interventionism. And he is responding to that confusion. I believe he said that the American people don't know what they want. They're confused about foreign policy, and he's responding to that. And I think it's a good point. But I think it's 100 percent inaccurate. And, and, and I think I think there are larger discussions to have around that point. But I would argue that President Obama is not responding to public sentiment. President Obama created public sentiment and the public is confused about foreign policy because President Obama is confused about foreign policy. If you just take Syria as an example President Obama did not spend two and a half years making the case for why inevitably he would call for intervention into Syria as he did unsuccessfully. He didn't make that case. He spent two years not talking about it. And when he did, drawing red lines that he then abandoned. Why would our allies, why would the American people have any understanding or appetite for intervention at the 12th hour right. when he suddenly asks for it. So I think it's less, the it's it's not as causal. Um, well, well, the question is, who's causing the confusion? Is it the American public that is confused and President Obama's responding to that confusion? Yeah. Or is it President Obama that's fostering that confusion himself? Let's not talk about him behind his back. Let's bring in uh, writer at National Review, Charles Cook, the um, utterer of those statements to uh, take you on, Essie. Yeah, uh, Charles, thanks for coming on. And, you know, I don't need to, um, you know, butter you up. You know, I think you're great. And I, I'm sure, um, so you know, you, you had you had good points there. But I, tell me tell me where I'm wrong if you disagree with me. Well, I do disagree. I don't disagree with everything that you've just said. I think when it comes to foreign policy and to explaining his position and indeed to holding anything that could reasonably be, be described as a position, Barack Obama is extremely weak. So insofar as the American public's confusion is in some part a product of that, I agree with you. Where I absolutely disagree with you is that the American public's unwillingness to get involved in the world and the dynamic we now find ourselves in, ourselves in uh, I disagree that that's the product of Barack Obama. I think he's the product of it. You go back to the primary in, in 2008, Hillary Clinton really hadn't noticed that the Iraq war was a liability and just mm. how much the sentiment had changed, and Obama had. And it's not an odd thing in American history for the public to go through one of these phases. I mean, for, for, the most, for the first century of American history, this was the norm. 
this was the norm after World War One, which was a disaster, and Americans turned against getting involved. This was the norm after Vietnam, and it's the norm after Iraq, I think. And so I think, yes, it's, it's a vicious cycle because Obama is there because the public feels like this, and now the public feels like this because of Obama. But he's still operating within a context that is far less likely to give yeah. him what he wants than, say, the last president and, and even the one before him. Yeah, I, 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 see, I see your point there. And while I can't compete with your British accent, I, I, I will match you on some historical references. Can I just and, say and I, I just love going from chew tobacco, chew tobacco, chew tobacco spit to... Right, to Charles. Those, those words he pronounces in funny ways. I know. Thanks for... Thanks for elevating our our credibility, Charles. And I'd love to get I'd love to get listeners' opinion on this. It's eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three, because again, I fundamentally disagree here. Um, you know, you brought up American sentiment after World War One and after Vietnam, and and you're not wrong. But I, I can match you there um, with with two other examples. After um, we had just spent as a new country a lot of blood and treasure winning our independence. Very early, very soon thereafter, there was a conflict overseas that was requiring us to pay tribute to terrorists, Islamic terrorists off the coast of northern Africa, to get our merchant vessels into Europe through the Mediterranean Sea. And we'd been paying tribute, we'd been paying these guys off, and yet they managed to kidnap or kill a million Christians— in the early part of the 19th century. And so in 1801, President Jefferson decided, even though we had no Navy, we had no money, and we had no appetite to fight yet another war, that it was necessary and imperative that we go in and begin and win essentially what was the first Barbary War. And not only did we do it then against public sentiment, we did it, we did it later, again after 1812, and there was even less appetite to go into another war, we went into the second Barbary Wars under James Madison to win decisively. And thanks to that, we have a modern Navy, which we didn't have before. And we have our our current policy, which is not to negotiate with terrorists. That was an example of not one, but two presidents going against public sentiment and appetite and leading the country against their will into a conflict that was not even on our own shores, but on the shores of Tripoli, to do what was right, not just for our own merchants, but for for the world at large. And, and, and frankly, we did the same thing during the Civil War. President Lincoln was faced with a Union general defector, George McClellan, who ended up opposing him in 1864 for the presidency. Though he was a Union general, he ended up running as a Democrat, Because he thought northern sentiment had changed. There'd been too much blood lost. We need to end this war. Let's negotiate with the Confederates and forget abolition. Let's forget about it. Lincoln stood fast and against public sentiment said, we need to win this war. We need emancipation. This is too important 
to abandon at this point. I don't think, and you it's ha- that kind of leadership okay. that you're not seeing as President Obama pulls out of Afghanistan. That you're not seeing as President Obama refuses to engage in Syria. That you're not seeing in all of the theaters around the world where President Obama has decided, I'm going to allow my confusion to dictate public confusion and determine where this country goes. I think, by the, by the way, I don't think you well, have to go back as far as you did, Essie. You can look at the first President Bush in 1992 with Iraq. There was no public appetite to defend Kuwait from the aggressions of Saddam Hussein. But I think you're also debating separate questions, and Charles, I'll, I'll throw this to you then. You're debating should versus is, right? You're describing the situation, Charles, accurately. There is no public appetite to get involved in these foreign conflicts. The question is, should Barack Obama be following that public temperature that you've taken, or should he be dictating it? Should he be leading it? Should he be guiding the public? That seems to be where you guys are dividing. Well, yes. I would just draw a slight distinction between the Barbary Wars and the Civil War, uh, in that the Civil War happened in Lincoln's own country. But that to one side. The question here is how much political capital presidents need to use at any given point in order to get involved overseas. And that goes up and down. So, yes, the president is not leading. Uh, Yes, the president has chosen not to expend his political capital. But one of the reasons for that is that it is much more costly now, or at the moment, it's not necessarily a permanent state of affairs, for an American president to try and intervene overseas than it was 15 years ago, because Iraq and Afghanistan, rightly or wrongly, have become bogeymen in the American imagination. Yeah, but Charles, he, it wasn't Obama costly. Recognizes that. But it wasn't too costly for him not to go into Libya. He built a coalition around that. He convinced the American people that it was an okay thing to do. No one in the public sphere is debating currently whether we should have gone into Libya except for politicos. The American public was with him on that. Well, if 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 they're probably indifferent, but yes, but when it came to Syria, he had 90% disapproval on it, or 90% opposition. Now, I don't believe that that is entirely the product of his inability or failure to make a case. I think that's, at the moment, at least dispositional. If he had chosen to do it anyway, which he could have done, given his his inclination to ignore the constitutional limits under which he operates, he may well have done, he would nonetheless have paid a political price. What price would that have been? Well, he would have paid a political price if Congress had opposed him, as it looked like it was going to do. He would have paid a political price in the midterms. He's going to pay one anyway, but that's, uh, again, Obamacare, he's not exactly in a good position to take unpopular decisions on top of Obamacare. But he didn't bring Congress along in Libya, and he didn't pay a political price for that decision. Yes, but Congress wasn't opposed to Libya. Congress looked as if it was going to vote against him, which is really why there was a deal. And Congress was going to vote against him because 89 or 90 percent of the American public said, no, there are political costs when you're an American president. It's a little bit different in a parliamentary system. And I'm suggesting that if you had identical situations with Barack Obama post-Iraq and Afghanistan and, say, Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan before it, the calculation for a president is different, and he is, as much as anything, an expression of the popular mood, and the popular mood is the first time since 1964, polling shows, 
America should attend to itself first and stay out of international affairs. Now, well, I wait, 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 we got to hold on, guys. We got we got to leave it here. We got to take a quick break. I'd love for you to stick around, Charles, and continue this when we come back in five minutes. Oh. Less than that, actually. Um, we got to take a break on Cane and Cup. We'll continue this debate with Charles Cook and SE Cup when we come back. This is Cane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. And I'm Will Kane. And we are joined by guest and friend of the blaze, Charles Cook, who uh, I overheard this week making an argument about the president's foreign policy. And we're talking right now about whether the president responds to American sentiment or the president changes and shapes public sentiment. And look, Charles, no one can argue that Iraq and Afghanistan have have haven't contributed to this lack of appetite for intervention of course they have not only does president obama respond to that people like Rand paul have responded to that and and are a reflection of that i totally agree but i would argue that it's the job of the president to lead the country to places metaphorical places that it might not be comfortable going and there is a danger in allowing public sentiment to shape those decisions. And we saw that danger play out in waiting too long to intervene in World War II, which most people agree was a mistake. Bill Clinton has reflected on his decision to wait too long to intervene in Rwanda in that humanitarian crisis. So I think a a president who really leads can surmount even the odds stacked against this president with Iraq and Afghanistan and the lack of public appetite, if he had an actual moral compass that was guiding his positions on these issues. See, I think this is where we disagree, and I think Will may be right when he says we're talking about different things. I agree that that is what should happen, Mm. and I agree that that is what I would like to happen, but I'm not sure that it can. If you look back, say, at the Second World War, Winston Churchill was right about Germany and world affairs in 1933, but there was no way after the horrors of the trenches that he was going to get his way until something obvious happened, and the Mm. same thing with FDR and Pearl Harbor. And I don't believe that this president, although he could do a much better job, I'm with you on that, this is not a defense of Barack Obama's leadership skills, it's just an imposition of limits on how far his leadership skills can take a population that is war-weary, and he's going to have to spend so much more time and political capital and effort than an American president would have done in 1980 when the enemy was obvious or in 1990 when uh, the economy was great um, now than than, than he would have in the past. And, uh, And I just think operating within those realities, we should cut him some stack and recognize that it's not just Obama, it's the American people. I think you guys have arrived at your your, your point of disagreement. Um, yeah. And we'll never know, by the way, 
to your to your question, Charles. We'll never know if he could have, if he had the political capital to spend, if he could have rallied America to these causes because he bungled that job so readily, so thoroughly from the start. Syria by itself wasn't just a case not made. It was a case, you know, that was counter productive to going into Syria. This false red line this that would compel us to war, the backing in and out of the red line, that that not just kept us from rallying to that cause, it made us walk away. I'm not going to do something that confusing, mm-hmm. that false, that much of a pretense. That's that's not going to get me in that direction. But the should question remains because I find myself in the the part of the American public that says Syria is not our fight. I cannot find our American interest. I cannot see the possibilities for good outcomes. Well, unfortunately, I think in in probably less than 10 years, we'll see exactly why Syria was our fight. We'll see exactly the consequences of not acting in Syria and 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 not just on a humanitarian level, not just in the Clinton Clintontonian sort of reflection of of I wish I could have saved more lives, but in very real consequences for the spread of global terror and and, and changing geopolitics that will be very difficult to unwind. All right, Charles. Thanks, Thanks for, for humoring in. me, Charles. I appreciate it. No, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the debate. You're in Texas say. today. Enjoy it. I am in Texas today, Houston. Is Will it, will tell you that's not really Texas. I wouldn't do that to Houstonians. <laughs> There's too many of them. <laughs> no, All, right. Wow. All right, Charles. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Right. Um, well, he's a good sport to come on and debate me. You know, of course. Of course, that English accent changed the course of the show. Well, I can't, I can't go up against that. No. What I mean, I'm always going to lose up against that that accent. Yeah, you are. I know, I know it. But I, I mean, he didn't change my mind. You have a different calculus when it comes to foreign policy than than I'm not going to say all of us or most of us. No, just than you, than yeah, me. I know. And some yeah. of us, like Charles, that also find themselves on the more libertarian leaning side of foreign policy. And that is you, as do as you exactly said, allow a moral compass to guide you, right? Yeah. And I am much more cold and calculating on the concept of American interest, national mm-hmm. security interest. And if I don't see it, I don't spend American lives and money on it. No, I, I know we've we've had this sticking point before. Right. I would argue in Syria there are American interests, but also but also humanitarian interest is part of my calculus, and I think I think we differ there too. Right. All right. Listen, there's a new uh, there's a new battle um, emerging in society in culture. Oh, yeah, and it's over the it's over. Uh, see, I don't even know Just what say now. It. Transgender, Just say it. transgenderism, <laughs> transgenders. Uh huh. Let's do this. Let's dive into that debate when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return. 888-900-3393. Give us a call. Hang out with us. Tweet us at Will Kane, at S.E. Cup, or hashtag Kane and Cup. The cover of Time magazine says we have reached the transgender tipping point. On that cover is Laverne Cox, actress in Orange is the New Black. Um, 
the moment seems to have arrived where the debate over many aspects of the transgender community is pervasive. In fact, I think this week I see you sent me the article where the National Park Service will begin installing markers at places of importance for the LGBT community. That's lesbian, yep. guys, bisexual, and transgender community. You'll have plaques, National Park Service plaques, <clears throat> uh, commemorating moments in that history, such as um, the Stonewall Bar here, which was the site of uh, protest back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. The many say was the beginning of the LGBT movement. It seems like this is this is here. Now, here's what I want to posit to you, USC, and you, the callers, the listeners. Um, I I I think that those, and I welcome your disagreement if you happen to find yourself in this community. Those in the transgender community are running up against an inherent conflict, a tension, and that is respect versus reality. In many of these instances, in many of these controversies, I think you're asking people to change reality. And I don't mean that in like a civil rights, this is a status of our society that must be changed. But actually in objective reality, um, you're asking us to forego our understanding of the real world in order to accommodate a concept of respect for you. And I and I, here's the thing, Essie. I, I the the reason I find myself as someone who advocates for and has advocated for gay marriage, and for that matter, for respectful treatment of anyone in the transgender community, is because I revere individualism. I revere it. You dictate your own destiny. You can be who you want to be. You can do what you want to do as long as you don't interfere with someone else. Um, and I think that many of these controversies or many of these issues regarding where the transgender community is, yes, they're asking for respect, right? Don't derisively call us trannies, for example, which I didn't know. And apparently, uh, neither did Rush Limbaugh and that made the news this week. That is actually a derisive term. In fact, I want to do this. Let's play this cut where Rush Limbaugh was talking about the same thing we're talking about right now, the cover of Time magazine. And he actually had a caller call in to discuss with him this issue. Listen. Well, actually, I did hear you using that term, and uh, a lot of us do find that to be rather offensive because of the way it's been historically used. Oh, I didn't know that. Tranny is offensive? Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of an argument, and Ruth I thought it was taking I thought a position. It, you know, I heard Alec offensive. Baldwin use the term, uh, you know, when he was in trouble because he he's, he has made a lot of homophobic comments. Right. Yeah. And he wrote this big apologia that ran in one of the New York uh, area publications. He used the term tranny as though it were hip and an inside baseball term that, that made him uh, cool with the, with the, with the transgender. Yeah. You uh, know, that is kind of the. You know the the minority viewpoint. On right, let's it stop it there. Is that we're reclaiming that word like black people? Let's uh. So he went on to say, by the way, we're reclaiming that word the same way black people have uh, reclaimed the N word. Um, let's take this step by step, Essie. Okay, first of all, the, it doesn't escape me that the word tranny could be offensive and derisive. It's usually the context these words are used in, right? That defines how they are meant. What is meant by their how they're being used, and mm-hmm. you can easily envision how that is used as a term of derision 
and therefore this caller and this issue, it's an also an issue that RuPaul brought up this week, um, is one I'm fine with. Look, y- yes, if that is an offensive term, then let's not use it. Well, yeah, I, I think there, there's probably some confusion around this term, maybe to Rush Limbaugh, maybe to Alec Baldwin, maybe to the population at large, too, because, I mean, I always assumed when when someone was referred to as a tranny, it was really talking about transvestites, drag queens, and not necessarily a transgendered person. And those are two different things, right? RuPaul is not transgendered. He's not confused. He's a he's a guy. And it does most of his interviews as a guy, in fact. Does his show as a guy. Um, but he also happens to be a, a drag queen. And and that's a transvestite. They're not the same thing. And I, I, I can forgive a lot of the public confusion and surprise that some would consider tranny to be a a bad word because I, I think the public at large is confused about the differences between transvestites and transgendered and and what that all means because it's you know while while we might all know someone who's gay I don't know any transgendered people maybe that makes me sheltered but I don't in fact RuPaul went on a on a Twitter rant this week about this very issue did he not where he said yeah. um, that it shouldn't be a term of derision it shouldn't be an offensive term. The word tranny, and by the way, I didn't know the word shemale, by the way, is also um, offensive. Hmm. He went on to say that it's absurd to, he tweeted that it's absurd to turn these into words of offense because you're draping yourself in the mantle of victimhood. He said it's seeking out being the victim, correct? Well, he is in sort of a unique position in that he is not a victim. He is a very successful, wealthy celebrity who has turned what may have been, uh, I guess, a a victimhood kind of um, uh, status 40 years ago in his life into um, a hugely profitable business. I mean, this is what he does for a living. He dresses up as a woman very successfully. I'm not sure RuPaul is in the position to be the arbiter of what other people who are not as successful and wealthy and famous as he is, um, feel is an offensive term. Right. And so this is the point I'm getting to. The I can grant the premise because I can understand the situation where it's intended to be offensive. I can, I can understand the, the mm-hmm. situation where it is perceived, it is received as an offensive term. I can grant the premise. Tranny yeah. is an offensive term. But the debate moves on from there. And the transgender rights moment and movement moves on from there. And this is my premise about where you start to have reality and respect collide. And you begin to ask people something, ask of them something that is impossible. So I'll give you another example. On Piers Morgan's show, when he had it on CNN, he had uh, a transgender person, Janet Mock, on that show, right? And they were having a very cordial interview. And apparently when he went to break, he referred to her, he said, who used to formerly be a man. Um, And that upset Janet Mock and then their relationship went south from there on Twitter and on the air over two uh, subsequent interviews because she says not true why was she offended what I don't get it she said it's not true she said um, 
basically I see the argument is that gender is a construct, that she always was a woman. She may have had different genitalia, and we define these things by genitalia, that in her mind, in her being, in her soul, she was always a woman. So, Well, maybe that's true in her mind, but in a doctor's office, she was once a man, right? And I think you're illustrating my point. At some mm. point, you are running headfirst into reality. Your DNA, not just you know your body parts, your chromosomes, your DNA dictate and suggest what you are, and you're asking, if you find, if you say you're not that and you want to be something else, wonderful. Seek out your happiness in the spirit of your individualism. Yeah, go get it. But you're asking something impossible of people. You're asking them to deny reality, to suggest it's offensive for them to have said you used to formerly be a man or used to pronouns that somehow are confusing or offensive, confusing to some people and offensive to others. This... Again, Essie, it, can, it goes beyond language. It goes into mm-hmm. the bathroom. It goes into athletics. You know, there was a transgender MMA fighter who yeah. I believe formerly was a man fighting women. And that is – I just can't imagine a situation where we decide as society it's acceptable for mm-hmm. a man to get into the fighting ring with a woman because he's now decided to dictate or self-identify as something else. Mm-hmm. Reality is dictating this in a different direction. Well, yeah. It, I mean, you're right. It it goes into bathrooms and and how we decide where people are going to go. And I mean, that that gets into privacy issues and, and just general societal comfort. It goes into athletics. It goes into prisons. I mean, we have debates about whether taxpayers should fund sex changes for prisoners who have decided they want to be they were men. They want to be women. Um, I believe Chelsea Manning is uh, Bradley Manning. Now, Chelsea Manning is at the center of one of these controversies. There's a there's a a prisoner in um, Massachusetts who is also famously trying to get a sex change operation paid for by the state, essentially, because he's uncomfortable. And there are people who would advocate for that because they think that it is part of a sort of uh, a mental incapacitation to refuse him this surgery that it is detrimental to his mental stability his emotional well-being to to deny him this surgery so these issues are now being confronted by the general public in very real ways um you know the bathroom issue i think is the most sort of immediate most accessible kind of confronting that we have to do because everyone at some time uses a public restroom. Right. And how do we meet that out? By the way, that's not an old debate. Feminists had that debate during uh, the Equal Rights Amendment arguments because feminists were suggesting, okay, if we're all going to be equal, we should be treated equally. And and conservative women said, whoa, hold on a second. Does that mean that I'm going to have to share a bathroom with that guy over there? Because I don't want to do that. Right. So I think that's that's sort of like an immediate accessible battleground for a lot of people, the the bathroom. Uh, But of course, it goes it goes into greater aspects of our lives. Yeah, Philosophically, I think the point holds and that is you're you're free to pursue your happiness. You're free to define yourself and dictate the outcomes of your life. However, you you might choose as 
until you impose upon someone else. The great libertarian line is you're free to swing your fist and your freedom to swing that fist ends at the tip of my nose. When you ask someone else and when you force someone else to accept your reality, however you choose that reality to be, then that changes, right? Then it changes things. I agree. People should treat others with respect. And if something is offensive, then it should be respected, not Mm. not to use that term. But when you suggest that that your status allows you to get in the ring and fight a woman. Now 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 it's no longer just about you, right? When it dictates that you go into the bathroom and can impose uncomfortable situations on others. Now mm-hmm. it's no longer about you. And if everywhere we turn, you're asking someone to deny the reality that you used you formerly were a man. You're imposing and forcing upon other people standards that a moment ago was about your freedom. And now it's about dictation. Yeah, when you change from acceptance to embracing, that's sometimes a line too far, right? Right, exactly, um, right. Accept me, sure, I accept it. Embrace it, maybe not. Right. Let's take a break. Uh, coming up in the next hour, we've got to get into uh, camping. Is it overrated? We want to talk oh. about all the explanations for what happened at UCSB. But let's take a quick break. When we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Twitter has spoken. Apparently, if I'm going to rehab, it's for porn. Oh, how do they know? Why do they say that? NSA? I don't know. Oh. I don't don't know why they know that. It's not about knowing, by the way. It's false. (laughs) Um, Whatever, Will. Whatever, whatever. Maybe they know you really well. Apparently, you have convinced everybody that I was possibly in rehab last week, or amongst the explanations for where I might have been, that was one of the... It was one of them, yeah. One of the possibilities. Well, I speculated uh, for three hours last week. Every segment, I speculated on yet another reason why you might not be there. Rehab um, was one. Plastic surgery was one. <laughs> Came up with a whole list of them. Actually, my absence was two weeks ago. Last week, I was camping. Two weeks ago, I was in the great state of Texas attending my brother's graduation from law school at Texas Tech University. And I'm here to tell you something, I see. There are some Blaze listeners, some Blaze viewers in Lubbock, Texas. Now, my in-laws are from Lubbock, Texas, Mm -hmm. so I go there. But I was really – it was nice to get out of New York City and I'm serious, interact. Why, because you were a big deal there? I'm kind of a big deal in Lubbock. You're a big deal in Lubbock? No. Do you get recognized a lot? People listen. People watch. You know, you walk around New York City, you would think, I don't know who's out there. And nobody loves you, yeah. (laughs) It's not about me. (laughs) This isn't about me. I think it's about you. (laughs) All right. If I was going to I'm glad you got some love. I'm glad you got some love. It's nice to know people are out there listening. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. Here it is. If I'm going to rehab, it's for nicotine. If you take a look at your life and say, where have I ever been addicted to something? It was nicotine. I'm not anymore. Well, I am. You always are, right? Isn't that what they say? I don't use it. Um, But I can say those are one of the few times in my life where I did something where I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I have total control of this. (laughs) They don't have rehab for nicotine. They'd have addiction. What? Okay, what are you going to rehab for? 
crack. <laughs> I've never done it, uh, but it looks fun. And I bet if I did, I would want to do it again and again and again. You're you're an upper type, you, you, yeah. The upper I, I don't know, but it, it, they sure look fun. They sure look fun, do they? <laughs> When we come back, let's do this. Um, in the wake of the shooting at UCSB, the very tragic shooting at USB, USCSB, people had explanations across the board. They blamed everything except for one thing, except for the guy who pulled the trigger. Let's talk about that when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. 888-900-3393. Welcome back. I'm Will Kane on Twitter, at Will Kane. I'm S.E. Cup at Twitter, at S.E. Cup. Last week, about a week ago, uh, late Friday night, a week ago, Elliot Roger, 22-year-old guy in California, went on a rampage. Actually, uh, John, uh, who runs the board for our show, came into me during the break, said, you know, you described Elliot Roger as a shooter. Um, I said, I did? said, yeah. Yeah, that's not exactly accurate, is it? Or well, not no, com- he's also like a knifer. Yeah, at least not completely accurate. And that's kind of the point in the end uh, that I want to get to here. Uh, Elliot Roger shot, stabbed, and ran over people mm-hmm. a week ago, killing six people, injuring something like 13. And throughout the process, there's been kind of, uh, throughout the news story, there's been an impulse to, I think, simultaneously reduce Elliot Roger into something that we can easily comprehend, a shooter, and it explode him, blow him up into something larger that indicts not just what happened at UCSB and not just him, but all of us, a societal ill, something we can indict, something we can fix, something well, we can correct. Yeah, and, and, and in exploding him, the effect is to remove him completely from the equation. Right. And and that's the most frustrating part, because I think with all of these tragedies, and they're not all alike, but we do two things. We try to solve for the last tragedy, so we come up with legislative solutions that would have prevented the last one, but of course, the next one looks nothing like it. And then the other thing we try to do is find the why, or as you would say, the why. <laughs> right. The Why. And and that's what people are trying to do with Elliot Roger, but they're doing it to such an extent, frankly, the, the likes of which I've not yet seen. I did not see this with Adam Lanza. I did not see this to the extent with Jared Loeffner, uh or James Holmes, um, the Aurora shooter. I, I have not seen it to this extent. Well, because in as those I'm ins- seeing with Elliot Roger, because in those instances, it was easier to focus on one scapegoat. It was easier to focus on one external problem. Yeah, the gun, mm-hmm. and that became the cause. To blame yeah. the gun and take away the gun, and therefore we have something to fight. We have something to fix. That we have something that we can rationalize beyond just a crazy person. This isn't yeah. so easy. You can't come down with just one. So we have a list. <laughs> we have almost a top five list of absolutely crazy things. Crazy. That became societal ills in the wake of Elliot Roger. 
and that effectively removed him from the equation. You want to go so that no one is talking about the perpetrator, right? The guy who did it, who is to blame. They're talking about everything but. And frankly, the only honest, the only honest response is maybe nothing would have prevented this tragedy. Well, let's go through the list of things, the list Mm -hmm. of societal ills that Elliot Rogers supposedly reveals, that Elliot Rogers supposedly illustrates, um, because they were many. Many and crazy. They were crazy. Let's start with the first sort of obvious one, the one that got a lot of attention, and frankly, the one that's maybe easiest to forgive, because it was made by the father of one of Rogers' victims. Let's play a clip of Mr. Martinez. Why did Chris die? Chris died because of craven, irresponsible politicians and the NRA. They talk about gun rights. What about Chris's right to live? Yeah, not not accurate. Understandable, because as the father of a victim and a victim yourself... I can imagine, I can understand wanting to find a scapegoat, someone living to blame, because Elliot Roger is no longer living. He, like a crazy coward that he is, took his own life. Um, I get that impulse. Of course, it's ridiculous. Let's, let's leave the offensive part out of it. Forget the fact that it's also offensive. Let's just take it on its accuracy. The idea that the NRA, this body of of millions of members of law-abiding gun owners, is to blame for what Elliot Roger did that day is ridiculous. And the idea that politicians in Washington may have somehow prevented this is also ridiculous. Well, may I remind you, Elliot Roger passed multiple background tests. Elliot Roger used legal guns that no one is talking about banning. Well, the ultimate argument is also that he did not just use guns. Elliot Roger he used, used knives, knives and cars. And cars. So, Elliot Roger would have found a way to make this a memorable day. Because Elliot Roger is the craven one. Elliot Roger is the crazy one. Elliot Roger is the criminal. But Elliot Roger's not here, so we can't blame him, I guess. Well, the story on guns... I think actually is how few people have jumped on scapegoating guns is the problem yep. in this situation, at least with yep. this news cycle. There have not been politicians out there calling for more gun control. There have not been people right. championing the cause. Even the even the advocacy organizations haven't really stood up in this situation and said, here's yet another example of the problem with guns in our society because it is such a weak case. It's a weak argument. Them. Yeah. And but can I is. say this, Essie, for the to yeah. the father? You know, all of these all of these explanations or attempted explanations we're going to go through have – you can understand why they're being forwarded. I, some, I will not agree to that. Not some, all no, no. You can understand it. I didn't say it legitimizes them. You can understand what they're doing. <laughs> With the father, it's a very natural impulse that we saw also not just among the victims' families after Sandy Hook but societally. We reach for the handrail of sanity. We reach for something, and an answer, something to fix gives us that, that, that handrail to hold on to. With the father of one of the victims of Elliot Roger, turning to some explanation is an emotional and understandable impulse. Yes, I completely agree. It's understandable. I think I said forgivable. Right. 
but um, certainly not legitimate. And actually, I mean, he has latched on to the activist groups, um, the Moms Against Illegal Guns, Moms Demand Action, Bloomberg's gun group, anti-gun group. They've reached out to him. He's working with them now. They are making um, something of this. I think there was a Twitter hashtag that they all started using based off of his speech, uh, not one more, when he said not one more child, something like that. Um, And he's meeting with the Sandy Hook families. So, I I mean, you will see some activism around this, but I think you're right that the political sphere recognizes, A, this has failed. This failed when 20 children were involved. And B, this is such an obvious case where you can't blame the gun unless you want to blame all guns, all knives, and anything else that could be determined a weapon. Right. Well, but speaking of hashtags, that leads us to one of the other explanations, which really perhaps took the uh, the, the 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 majority of media attention in the wake of of mm-hmm. Elliot Rogers' violence, and that is the "Yes All Women" hashtag, mm-hmm. and that Elliot Rogers is a, an example, an illustration of misogyny. And in fact, we have uh, his manifesto to illustrate some of that tension, some of that hatred. Of women. Do we have a, a piece of Elliot Rogers' manifesto? Let's play that. I'll give you exactly what you deserve, all of you, all you girls who rejected me and looked down upon me and, you know, treated me like scum while you gave yourselves to other men. And all of you men for living a better life than me, all of you sexually active men, I hate you. I hate all of you. Yeah. Uh, look, here's the thing. Was Elliot Rogers, did he have hatred towards women? Yes. Is there misogyny in society? Yes. Can you connect these two facts and suggest that one illustrates the other or one should force the conversation about the other? Emphatically, no. And you sent me this article, Essie. Heather Wilhelm wrote this in The Federalist. Mm-hmm. I have a natural aversion, which one of which you can Google and see incidents of towards hashtag activism in general. Mm -hmm. And this is why. Because ultimately the hashtag is about you. And you're turning a tragedy. You're turning a a murder spree into, let's talk about me. That's what Heather Wilhelm wrote in The Federalist. Let me make this about me and my personal experiences in life. And this is the act of a crazy man and the individual tragedy of the victims and their families. Yeah, uh, right. Not only does it make it about me, But it also reduces this to something so trite and trivial that it becomes almost it becomes meaningless and almost comical, which is so, so sad. Um, You know, let me let me start out by saying as a woman, as a woman who is um, in the public eye, for lack of better word, um, I have absolutely been the victim (laughs) of death threats, misogyny, hate mail, stalking. Um, that's part of the business. And I imagine many women can relate to how terrifying and horrific those experiences are. However, not all men, hashtag not all men, um, are misogynists. And not all advances or interactions are harassment. And Heather Wilhelm's piece, which is brilliant, and everyone should read it on The Federalist, 
I think makes that point really well because she picks out some of the worst examples of these tweets uh, using the hashtag yes all women that illustrate just how far afield this activism has gotten from the real problem. I'll just read a couple. Uh, one person, keep in mind, in response to a killing spree, said, here's to never hearing a dude tell a woman to smile ever again. Because apparently that is misogyny and harassment. Right. Here's another one. If I don't feign an interest in what the too friendly grocery clerk is telling me, everyone in line will judge me. What? What? Yeah. And here's another good one. When I asked for a happy meal and didn't specify a gender, they gave me boys toys. Male is the default. Turning it into about you. Now I it's told about you. you and your experience at McDonald's or your experience at the grocery store, which which is not an experience. Those are not experiences, and they are nothing, nothing compared to what Elliot Roger did to these innocent men and women. I told you earlier that you can understand where some of these motivations come from. Uh, with the father, I said it was an emotional reaction. What you see here is the attaching of a pre-existing agenda to a tragedy, an exploitation of a tragedy yeah. for your agenda. I don't think that, yeah. the, I, to be clear, understanding is not the same as legitimizing. That's what's going on here. I understand they're attaching their agenda disgustingly to a tragedy. But believe it or not, they got yeah. crazier, right? The explanations uh-huh. got crazier. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk about where this spiral goes down from here on Cane and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Kane and Cop on the Blaze Radio Network. It, it, unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. In the wake of Elliot Rogers shooting at UCSB, everything but Elliot Rogers has been found to blame, from the gun to misogyny with the Yes All Women hashtag, and it devolves from there. And Hornaday, a film critic at the Washington Post, said, You know what this is about? I'll tell you what this is about. This is about Judd Apatow movies. That's what this is about. <laughs> it's about comedies where the guy always gets the girl and sets, what is it? Unrealistic expectations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ann Hornaday is a film critic. <laughs> she wrote in the Washington Post and I guess trying to find something to comment on this national tragedy that was still within her wheelhouse, decided to make um, a criticism of... Judd Apatow movies. He wasn't the only one, um, but this didn't go over well with Judd Apatow and, and Seth Rogen, who she also commented on. But the gist of her argument is here. She writes, for generations, mass entertainment has been overwhelmingly controlled by white men whose escapist fantasies so often revolve around vigilantism and sexual wish fulfillment, often, if not always, featuring a steady through line of casual misogyny rogers rampage may be a function of his own profound distress but it also shows 
how a sexist movie monoculture can be toxic for women and men alike. It's not just misogyny. It's the <laughs> movies that contribute to that misogyny, particularly the comedies. Um, and- I really thought I really thought that we we dismissed this line of critique a long time ago. I thought after like after Columbine and Marilyn Manson was to blame, I thought we all as a country first laughed and then resoundingly dismissed the idea that movies and television and video games and song lyrics are responsible for the actions of mass murderers. Did we not? Well, you would you would think that the uh, crime statistics, the yeah. statistics suggest violent crime is down, gun crime is down. Even perhaps, at least through 2010, mass shootings yeah. were down. That would be a direct contradiction to the idea that movies are taking us down a path well, of well, a more the other thing, culture. The other thing that is a direct contradiction is that millions of people do not go out to movie theaters and shoot people up. Right. Do not go into high schools and shoot people up. This Do is not an, go out into US, US, UCSB and shoot people up. This is an iteration of the Yes All Women critique. This is an iteration that misogyny is the problem. In fact, didn't the Southern Poverty Law Center say the same? Oh, boy. Yeah, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has many problems of its own um, that we won't get into here, also decided on MSNBC on the Reed Report to make this about something bigger than Elliot Roger. Let's play that clip. Well, uh, there is a whole world uh, known as the manosphere of these sites. There are scores and scores of the sites, if not hundreds of them. Uh, and the thing that is most uh, prevalent, the thing that's most noticeable about them, is their often really extreme misogyny. Hmm. Hey, what scores? What, what's the definition of scores? So if you say uh, there are scores and scores, in fact, hundreds, I, I don't, I'm lost numerically. Yeah, but what? I don't know. Well, a score, 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 score 20? is 20. I'm being told 20. it might be a 20. Oh. It's 20. Four score and seven years ago. Did not know that. A score is 20. But um, yeah, so so he's blaming, Southern Poverty Law Center is blaming websites uh, known as the Manosphere, which sounds funny, not terrible, <laughs> um, for creating a culture of misogyny. Now let me, let me just take this one down. Um, misogyny exists whether there's a website or a group or a clever name for it, or not. It exists. It will always exist. It's just there. Organizing around it does not lead a man like Elliot Roger to make the decision he did. Because there are plenty of other organizations that also do... I mean, it's just... It's it's absolutely asinine. You know what? It, it wasn't, is asinine. It wasn't limited to the left, by the way. On the right, Breitbart.com had an article where it suggested this was actually <laughs> a characteristic of the wussification of men. If Elliot Rogers had been a participant mm. in sports, winners and losers and success and failure, he would have been more capable of handling his own rejection in his life and having you know realistic expectations. Look, here's the deal. Okay. Also, maybe had he been a vegetarian <laughs> or lived in Canada. That's not part of that article. Or, I get where you're no, but, but it's as ridiculous and arbitrary. Right. It is as ridiculous and arbitrary. There's inherent 
arrogance, lack of humility, in thinking you can not only climb into the mind of a mentally unstable, crazy person and figure out the motivation for their actions, but to extrapolate from those actions into the minds of 150 million, perhaps more, other people and suggest you are also suffering from a similar cause and that you too could one day find yourself in a situation like Elliot Roger. The lack of humility, the arrogance in this Mm -hmm. is astounding. What we have here is the case of a crazy man. A crazy man. And it's un- it's unfulfilling, and it's scary to think crazy people exist. And perhaps there's nothing we can ever do to rid society of them, but they're there. And that's what happened last week. Yep. All right, when we come back on Canaan Cup, camping, I've teased the worst subject in the world for three hours. Camping. A.K.A. rehab. <laughs> camping. And by the way, what's the definition of cheating? There's a oh. morning drive conversation for you. What's cheating? <laughs> on Canaan Cup when we come back. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. And Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. I wasn't at rehab. I wasn't. Whatever. I was camping. That's where I was last weekend. Two weeks ago, I was in Lubbock, Texas. Last weekend, I was camping for Memorial Day. Um, I understand you went to see Godzilla on Memorial Day, and we both have opinions. Mm. So first, camping. All right, look. <laughs> bottom line, here it is. I'm going to lay it out for you. This is the way it is. Camping's overrated. No. I know. It's you just all did it wrong. You cool. did it wrong. It's all cool, guys. Yeah, I'm outdoorsy, right? I understand. I, I feel I'm coming at this from a position of confidence. I trust. Trust me. I <laughs> humble brag here. I lived in Montana. I took you camping. I was the guy that packed down the mule and took you 13 miles back into the mountains to spend seven straight days sleeping inside of a tent. I did it. I've done this. We pan for sapphires in the summer. We kill elk in the winter. I've done it. Pitching a tent to sleep on the ground in a public park in New Jersey, you know, forest, little hills we call mountains, it's overrated. Well, that doesn't sound fun. Back hurts. Yeah. Bath. (laughs) Did you do any fishing? No. Did no fishing. Oh. Well, then you did it wrong. No, that's called fishing, not camping. No, no, no. But when you go camping... The ideal scenario is you pitch your tent near a water source and then you fish. There was a river. There was a so river. So why didn't you why didn't you fish? Got in the river. Drop a line in there. Um didn't have gear. Well, and- that's your own fault. You have no one to blame but yourself. I, I keep a fishing pole in the back of my car, so at all times, anywhere I am, I can go drop a line oh if I have to. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna barf. <laughs> Also, what kind of foods did you bring? Because that sets the tone as well. All right. I cooked burgers one night and did a nice job, I must say. That's good. Wasn't that a rewarding experience, cooking outside? I'm not a cooker. Don't enjoy (sighs) the cooking thing. I like cooking one thing, ribs. A dry rub rib over four hours on a grill. Four hours. That's what I like to cook. The one thing I like to cook. And what I'm telling you is, I know we're supposed to like camping. It's image creation. Tough guy, man. It's also just fun. It's overrated. 
Wow, I'm disappointed now, if camping to hear is, that. If it means something, now uh, change the scenario a tad bit. It's fun to have my kids have fun. My boys loved it. That was awesome. Yeah. Now I used to camp where it meant you know five guys around a campfire and a bottle of Jack Daniels and hey, that's fun too. That's that I, I would imagine that remains fun. I think that's um, still probably fun. I think so too. I think so. Yeah, I think I think you do it again. Incorporate fishing. Maybe bring your 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 rib program and and make your ribs. <laughs> I think right? a key ingredient to camping, by the way, is not seeing someone else. There literally cannot be another tent within a nine iron from you where I can hear them over there and see their truck lights. Camping is about isolation. Yeah. Camping is about being removed from civilization, not just sleeping on the ground next to the next guy from right. from uh from the Marinek or whatever who yeah. is <laughs> He's sleeping People, on the ground, yeah. too. Hey, in this cool? We're camping. We're both on the ground. No, that's called not having a bed. Right, right. No, I agree. It sounds like you just did it wrong, Will. Okay, fine. It sounds like you just did it wrong. And what about Godzilla? Did they do that wrong? Because, by the way, I yeah. would never go see this movie. No, zero chance I would see Godzilla. Looks dumb, dumb, dumb. However, I've seen, I think, fairly positive reviews. And Walter from Breaking Bad is the lead actor. Yeah. Cranston. So yeah. How is it? Well, so I would never go see a movie like this either because I don't, I don't, I don't like sci-fi. I don't like fantasy. I'm not. I'm just. I can't buy it. I can't get into it. But I saw the preview and I thought it looked pretty good. And a big reason was Brian Cranston. And also, it just. I don't know. It looked. It looked like a movie I might like. Um, I hated it. You did. Yeah. The first problem, my first criticism of the movie Godzilla was, the movie theater was freezing. I was frozen. And that doesn't make for a good movie experience. I don't care what the movie is. I thought you were going to say the first problem was that it was a giant lizard walking out of the sea. Well, that's the other problem. <laughs> it wasn't one. It was three. And I'm not going to give too much away here for the people who still want to see it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was more than one giant ridiculous lizard and a bunch of U.S. soldiers running around with like handguns <laughs> trying to fight this thing. And I'm like, when are you guys going to learn... You're not going to defeat this thing. It's as big as the Empire State Building. Your handgun's not going to do the job. <laughs> um, I didn't care about any of the the characters. They weren't well developed. I just, it was, I mean, it was really just a vehicle to destroy recognizable buildings, which I actually like. I mean, I like disaster movies because they they let you live out these you know, these fantasies that no one really wants to happen. I don't want to see New York City destroyed. But I saw the day after tomorrow because the visuals were awesome. Right. Because I got to see what the Statue of Liberty would look like under 100 feet of water. And that was cool. I liked Disaster Movie. I liked Independence Day because you got to see what it would look like. I mean, I, that was an objectively good movie. Let's not just... Let's it was not... an awesome movie. Right. I thought I was, was afraid an... we were about to go down a bad path here. No, 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 no. That was an awesome movie. But, I mean, people like to see... You know, Deep Impact, Armageddon. What would happen if things went uh, went hinky? And so I liked I liked the disaster elements of Godzilla, but God, it was terrible. Otherwise, it was terrible. And why do you got to make the theater so cold? Hey, do you think that the presidential speech in Independence Day is the best fictional presidential speech of all time? It's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. We need to do that next week. I am going to come Ooh, up with a list of fictional presidential speeches, which include Harrison Ford. We will not be afraid. You 
it is your turn to be afraid. In Air, Air Force, Force One. one. Yeah, 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 no, I know it. I know it. And we'll that's pit great. them. Maybe we'll pit them against real presidential speeches. Who's better? This is such a good idea. I, I'm going to bring a list as well. Fictional presidents or real presidents? <laughs> this is this is an amazing idea. That today is our Independence Day? Yeah. You're, yeah. You get chills. You get chills. Yeah, let's it's look, really, really good. Let's do that. Yeah. And I will come with a list of my own. All right, users, listeners, users, listeners, <laughs> um, submit me some a list of, of of movie speeches, but also real presidential speeches. Let's get our top five from both. Let's have a let's have a speech off between. Yeah, that's a good idea. Fake presidents and real presidents. I need your I need your suggestions. I'm going to need some help on this. Tweet at Will Kane and at Se Cup. Give us your suggestions. Let's take a break. Um, and I'm not being facetious here. I think this is an interesting conversation. You know, um, what is the definition of cheating, meaning cheating on your spouse? Mm. And, and it's, these are debates that I, I'm not telling you this um, facetiously. I'm not telling you this proudly. I've, men have these conversations, you know. Um, so do women, might I tell you. Uh, I don't, sometimes I don't even realize you guys talk. Huh. Um, that, what is it, right? Is it, uh, is it any physical contact? Is it emotional investment? Because there's a new trend out there, and it's called, I guess, checksting. Okay? Checksting. That's cheating and texting. Does it rise? Go ahead. Well, uh, just a quick diversion. Before before you start getting letters, let me just say, Will Cain is not a misogynist. And when he said, sometimes I don't realize you guys, meaning women, talk, that's not really what he meant. I don't want people to take this (laughs) and cut that. And run that against you. No, I did mean it that way. No, you don't. I'm being, I, I'm being, that, that I was being light. I was joking. So if you at Media Matters want to cut that, go for it. You humorless human beings. <laughs> okay, I tried. I tried. My job here is done. Joking <laughs> it's around. It's all yours now. Lighten up, Francis. All right. <laughs> what is cheating? Is it texting? When we come back on Cane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. The next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup, is on. Getting some good recommendations on Twitter about speeches. Morning in America by Reagan. That's Rocky. Yeah, that's a real one. That's Mm -hmm. a good one. And on that note, R.L. Clapper, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mm -hmm. Then Liz Rimazowski says that that Independence Day speech is the best presidential speech ever. It outdoes, it, it makes up for everything else Bill Pullman has ever done. (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah it's a really good one but i i got some i got some others in my mind from okay. great movie presidents we're gonna do this mm-hmm. we're doing this all right let me tell you a story about <laughs> of out of uh out of miami cbs miami is reporting there's a disturbing trend blamed on it's blame being blamed for destroying marriages and ruining families it starts mm-hmm. as an innocent conversation but evolves into a deep bond it's called chexting a new form of betrayal that combines cheating and texting. Is this new, really? Not really. No. Maybe the name Chexting is. 
Oh, someone just figured out how to smush them together, and so now it's new. Right. Okay. It's conducting a secret life over the internet where you form an emotional bond that starts out like, oh, we're just friends, right, right? And then it clearly turns into something else. But when? That's the question. When is it something else that you should be aware of or afraid of or guard against? And one of the uh, people interviewed in the article said, you know, he accidentally left open his Facebook page one day, and I saw a whole nother life. Mm. And he goes to bed at night, texting, wakes up, texting with the same Mm. person. And at some point, an intimacy is created that's clearly... Although just emotional, cheating, inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to define, if you can, what is cheating? What is the line mm-hmm. on cheating on your spouse? Can you define that? Uh, no. I think the line is, you know, it, it's it's not as black and white as people think. There's a gray area. But I think that... Cheating is ultimately a betrayal. And if there's been a betrayal of trust in in that in that realm, then I think it's probably safe to say you've been cheated on. Okay, now hold on. Betrayal mm-hmm. is necessary but not sufficient to define cheating. Were I to cheat on my taxes, right, and not tell my wife, that's not cheating in the sense that we're talking about. That's lying to her, right? No, no, no. That's why I said in this realm, not not lying about money, lying about other... I mean, in this realm of... What's sort the realm? Of, uh, sexual, romantic, intimacy. In, in that realm, the betrayal is the, is the part that matters. I mean, you know, kissing another woman or texting with another woman can, can be equal betrayals. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I would feel just as betrayed if my husband had been conducting a text relationship with some woman that got intimate or emotional as I would if he'd come home drunk after hooking up with someone. The question, though, is what is emotional? Men and women text with each other all the time. You and I text about what we're going to uh-huh. talk about on work at work. I'm sure John, um, your husband, Kathleen, my wife, text with other people of opposite sex from time to time. So when is it emotional? How can it be defined then it is crossed over that line? I do think you're onto something with betrayal. The answer is if you're ever doing something that you wouldn't want the other person to see, if you wouldn't want your spouse to see it. Think we're getting there? Is that it? Well, sure. And I mean, any idiot would read our texts and realize this is not a betrayal. This is a work relationship, you know? And I think think it's a little clearer than that. Certainly, if there was something you were doing that you wouldn't tell your spouse about, that should be your first indication that maybe this isn't respectful, that maybe this is something of a betrayal. But, I mean, it's it's more than that because I, I feel like a lot of people might do these things and tell their spouses um, to sort of justify it. Well, yeah, I have this relationship with this girl, but it's friendly. It's It's totally friendly. And they they make themselves believe that it's not really a problem, when of course it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think at some point you have to actually get into the the, the texts, what's being said, right? And um, while it's a, attempting to peer into the subjective emotions of the parties involved, you also ask yourself objectively, yeah, you shouldn't have said that, right? That, at some point you have to read it. At some point what's actually being said, because the emotional lines are different for everybody. There, they are, yeah, and it it does, I think, depend on not just the context but the relationship. But there is a point in which every person 
has a choice. There is a point at which every person can make a decision to go there or not go there. That point, that moment always presents itself. Always. And that's the moment of truth, whether you cross that line or you don't. And if you get close to that line, well, that really just depends on the spouse, the spouse's sort of forgiveness window. Okay, he got close to the line, but he made the decision not to cross it. And maybe that counts for something. Maybe to another person, it doesn't. You got too close, period. End of story. But that moment always presents itself. And people sometimes like to say, well, it just happened. And before I knew it, there we were. No. You always have a moment to back out. Yeah. You always have a moment to make the right decision. Another so the exam- agency is always on, on, on you. Right. Another example, though, of technology changing our traditional definitions, um, moving the lines, making it easier on what is and what is not cheating. I mean, I don't think it's changed. Actually, it's the same, mm-hmm. but it, makes you, makes, it gives you a new avenue. Right. Well, it definitely makes it easier. Yeah. yeah. It makes it easier. Um, listen, we only have a minute left. SC, I'd love to do something if I could. I want to plug, if you don't mind, um, the third episode in the docuseries I've been producing, Elise versus the Mayor, is up. It's on theblaze.com. I have tweeted it. I'm very passionate about this, as you know, SE. And, oh, uh, these are so good. I mean, I, I've been tweeting them for you as well because they are so good. Not only is the production value awesome. I mean, awesome, but you can tell you're passionate about it. And the story you find, you found is awesome. You know, conservatives don't do a good job of telling stories. And this was, this is the point here. This is a story yeah, that you reflects do. our values. I hope you check it out. I hope you share it. Thanks for the kind words, SC. Mm-hmm. And thanks for hanging out with us today for three hours. Uh, you can keep up with us and keep the conversation going at SE Cup and at Will Kane. Hashtag Kane and Cup. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.